Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast. Hello, welcome to this COP28 edition of the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwe. So, the climate finance needs of developing countries have risen way beyond the 100 billion US dollars promised by developed countries 15 years ago. The recent UN Adaptation Gap report estimates the cost of adaptation to 215 billion US dollars per year this decade. And the loss and damage collaboration calculated midpoint says that by 2030, economic losses and damage will have risen to 671 billion US dollars. And then we're talking about UNDP, talking about African countries requiring about approximately 2.8 trillion US dollars from 2020 to 2030 to implement their NDCs. And by the way, there are so many other calculated cost of climate finance. This is just one of them. Now, we all know that access to finance is a catalyst, not just for development, but also adapting to climate change, averting loss and damages, mitigating further climate impacts, and also building trust, you know, in the multilateral process between developed and developing countries. But you see, finance under the climate negotiation process had had a long process. And so I invited Abbasana Mohammed Nasser, who is the African lead negotiator on finance, to discuss further where the globe is collectively and also moving forward on the new collective quantified goal on finance. Abbasanda, welcome to the show. And please do tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you so much, Sophia, and thank you so much for this invitation. My name is Mohammed Nasr. I'm uh, the lead negotiator for COP27. I'm ambassador of the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Egypt and um, lead negotiator for Africa on finance issues, uh, among other things. Engaged in this process for um, like since 2007, so quite some time, and I've been following and engaging in the different processes and deliverables that we have seen since 2007 until now. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, um, Abbasana Nasa. I really appreciate you coming back on this podcast. And uh, I-, I was thinking like we need to talk about the new collective quantified goal on finance. But before we actually even talk about the new goal, I think it's very important for us to go back in terms of looking back from the Copenhagen Accord, uh, looking into where the 100 billion came from. And I think let's start from there in terms of just bringing people up to speed in terms of how that whole goal came into speed and also looking into how is it anchored under the UNFCCC process. Okay, I mean, like the 100 billion, uh, the very famous 100 billion annual uh, delivery goal by developed countries or developing countries uh, came to existence in 2009 in the famous Copenhagen uh, meeting. And it was part of and uh, discussed and agreed package where from a small group of heads of states um, sitting together. I think there were like 26 heads of states sitting together in a small room trying to save um, the outcomes of the COP in Copenhagen. And there, there was the promise of the 100 billion for developing countries to assist them in shifting into climate resilient and um, low emission uh, development pathways. That was in 2009, and then it was confirmed in later decisions. It came together with another, like a short-term goal that was from 2010 to 2012, uh, that was 30 billion, 10 billion per year, um, again, to, the, to, to support developing countries. The goal of the two goals was to give this assurance to developing countries that they will be supported in any transition to a different development model. And based on them, and then in addition to them, the creation of the Green Climate Fund, that was the ingredients that were put forward for the Paris Agreement to be agreed. 
and then to be operationalized since 2020. So 2020 should have marked the delivery of the 100 billion per year by developed countries to developing countries. And then this will assist the, the, the envisaged transition that was envisaged in 2009. Of course, um, the value of 100 billion in 2009 is totally different than the value of 100 billion in, in 2020. Yet this figure has not been delivered until now. Of course, reports based on data is always covering like two years old data because this is when the governments provide their information and then the assessment and the compilation of, of the information is happens. Um, so last year and the year before, it was clear that there was no delivery up to 2021 and 2022 of this 100 billion. This year, there are some indications from the OECD saying that based on the projections from uh, 2019, 2020, 2021, then most probably the information that will be provided will show that we have or the 100 billion will be delivered this year. Of course, this is spending having confirmed information and data that only would happen like a year or two later. So by 2025, we can confirm that the OECD report is based on assumptions on the continuation of the same trajectory and the increase in, in the provisions of finance by developed countries, on the delivery by the private sector and, and the MDBs. But it does not factor in any change uh, or reduction due to external reasons like Ukraine war, for example. So this is the history of the 100 billion. This is where we are. And in the Paris Agreement, the developing countries were predicted that the 100 billion will not be relevant, um, taking into consideration the envisaged major transformation and transition of the economies and development model that is there. So there was an agreement that uh, by 2024, we will have a new goal that will we'll start implementing from 2025 onwards. And the 100 billion will continue between 2020 to 2025 until we agree to a new goal, which is called the new quantified climate finance goal. Thank you so much for that. I think before we talk about the new goal, um, you alluded there in terms of how it's been in terms of delivery. It's critical moving forward in terms of the lessons that you would say perhaps maybe the negotiating team, what are these key lessons that you've actually learned from this whole process from 2009 up to this? Well, the first lesson was that this number was a nice round figure that has a political dimension. It does not relate to needs. So it, it was not focused on delivering specific outcomes. It was more of a, a round figure that gives an indication of commitment and builds trust. But on the delivery part of it, um, one, there was no clear burden sharing between those who are going to provide this money. So you cannot hold anyone accountable, but you will hold all everybody not accountable for not delivering. While some have delivered, others have not. And a burden sharing process is one of the crucial elements so you can work on transparency responsibility and commitment the second one is that it has to be clearly linked to what you want to achieve so if you are at the 100 billion came just like in light of uh, or focusing on uh, efficient and meaningful mitigation actions and adaptation actions and the meaningful was not quantified but yet i mean i think in developing countryside they did deliver on that because they are committed to the paris agreement and they put the indices they have there are a lot have been achieved since 2010 until now and from 2015 and to 2020 and beyond so developing countries have delivered their own commitment mainly from their own resources not even from uh, other resources um the the fourth element is that it has to have, usually in those targets, you have to have a transparency mechanism that is under the process, within the multilateral process. So the reports that would come owned by the process and based on deliberations by the different parties, rather than small group of countries or an outside institution 
that is affiliated with the or with the developed countries preparing their own report from their own with all their own methodology and their own vision. The final one was that the definition of climate finance is still missing. So anything is being counted as climate finance. So there is no clear methodology with clear definitions. And with that, anything could be counted. Even organizing a workshop in Kenya or in Rwanda or some African countries is considered climate finance. And this is where the accounting becomes very, I would say, inaccurate. So it was not about implementing projects on the ground that delivers mitigation and adaptation elements, but it is more of a capacity building component, awareness thing. So it does not really deliver the expected outcomes as envisaged or as expected by the bigger countries. Um, I mean, bigger countries, like the countries who really and the populations who really want to see impact on the ground. Absolutely. And talking of definition of uh, what constitutes climate finance, in terms of the process, in terms of the new goal, is there headways in terms of defining what constitutes climate finance moving forward? Uh, well, it is part of the discussion that is going on. And of course, for those who have a responsibility to provide, they will always like to have a more flexible, soft approach when it comes to methodologies because it, it allows for um, portraying there is a delivery. And for those who are who should be benefiting and are, are relying or depending on such resources to deliver what they are expected to or what they are asked to deliver, they want to have clearer methodologies so they can plan and they can say, yes, I did receive, I did not receive, and they can understand what is being provided for which section, for which region, for which activity, for which project. Uh, but as it stands now, it is more of a generic uh, approach that everything could be counted as climate finance, similar to a future discussion that will happen on the Article 2 and C of the Paris Agreement. Let's talk about the legality in terms of the 100 billion and moving forward in terms of having that legal bindingness. What is the difference between the 100 billion and the process now, the new goal, in terms of ensuring that there at least can be accountability in terms of ensuring that promises that are made in terms of finance are actually delivered, and not just only specifically in terms of adaptation and mitigation, but also in terms of other goals as per the Paris Agreement in terms of technology transfer and also capacity building. Well, I mean, the 100 billion is clearly enshrined and embedded in decisions, and it is clearly mentioned as commitment by developed countries. So the language there is clear commitment, and the delivery comes from a clear group of countries which are developed countries to be given to developing countries. And so the language of the 100 billion was clear. The discussion that we are having now on the new quantified goal doesn't give this assurance that you will be from developed to developing, but they are mixing it even with discussion on, on this generic climate finance flows globally and then domestic resources in developing countries. And then, then you have a discussion on the different sources and innovative sources. All of this stuff it makes it a very weak and aspirational goal if, if it's even quantified and goals if they are there. And it, it makes it extremely difficult, if possible, even to capture them, to uh, to assess the progress on the delivery, and so on and so forth. So it makes it a challenging task to really ensure that the main catalyst for delivering this uh, envisaged transformation is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then most probably all these levels of ambition that is being put forward and then the countries are asked to be very ambitious, uh, this ambition will also be in question. Um, but now it is more of no one wants to take a responsibility to deliver. And finance and no one and it's like a more of a blame game or trying to frame game you take the lead i take the lead those countries who have money take the lead and that uh, communities and and many developing countries are being not even considered as impacted or those who have put their ambition forward and if they are not supported to deliver then that will be like a very questionable thing this is where we are very interesting because 
you're talking about no one wants to take responsibility, but at a time where the cost of adaptation has gone very high. You know, we and just had... And damage and, and everything, right. all the cost of everything. everything. The cost of mitigation, even the cost mm-hmm. of mitigation, the cost of finance in general is becoming very high. If so, even, even if you want to be 100% renewable tomorrow, if you try to get money from the current available sources, you'll be paying at least four or five times the interest rates that the developed countries are paying for the same project, which is, it doesn't make any sense. It's not fair. It's not equitable. It is not correct, but it is the reality now. And then the global finance architecture in general and the climate finance in particular. I was thinking of African countries have been calling in terms of that reform in terms of the financial architecture. And we are talking about perceived risk. In Africa, we are talking about rising debts in Africa. We are talking about the cost of finance that have actually gone so high in every way. But then again, this is the 28th UN Climate Summit, this multilateral process. From your perspective as an African negotiator who've been actually in this process and negotiating in this process, the fact that no one wants to take responsibility, does it build trust in terms of the cross-multilateral process? Oh, well, let's, I mean, like you need to look at the process not as 28 cops or in 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, this process has evolved from being like a, a technical environmental approach. So this is where things were easy. Developed countries are supporting developing countries. This ended in 2010-2011. But from 2010-2011, the whole global economy has changed. Political economy has changed. You have emerging countries, then you have a lot of financial crisis, and then you have limited resources, and then you have trade competitiveness. Things have changed. So you cannot look at climate change as an environmental issue. It's a pure development, trade, competition, and competitiveness issue. This is where it became clearer and clearer from 2010 moving forward. And this was reflected in the Paris Agreement, which sets new rules with no responsibility on finance or very weak responsibility on finance. And then moving from the Paris Agreement into uh, different processes where everybody is being asked to put money and then levies happening everywhere, taxation of everything. And now all these ideas of new taxations and taxations and taxations, which will impact developing countries more than India impacts developed countries because they already have these taxes um, since 2007. So reality is money is there. Yes. Is it going in the right direction? No. And why is not going there? It's not because developing countries are not able to attract it, but it is rather because the system that is there is focusing mainly on creating profit for the private sector and for all this uh, sovereign funds and other sources. So if you are a fund manager, your um, accountability to your shareholders uh, or your fund owners is that you make profit, the maximum profit possible. And doing the maximum profit, I mean, it is not about helping developing countries, it's about doing the profit with the least risk. And yes, Africa has resources like many other developing countries, but it also has a lot of risks from the perspective of the, of the current financial regime. Will that be fixed by changing the regime? That change the whole change? No. Creating a new regime? No. Creating more taxes? No. From my point of view, it will be fixed by having a different approach. And this is what we tried to reflect in Sharm Sheikh outcome, which is one, increase the scale. So it is not moving and replacing and repackaging the development and poverty eradication finance and call it climate finance. Two, it has to be easy access. So everybody can access those financial resources and you don't have all this long list of conditionalities that is pushed on developing countries. And three, the instruments that will be provided has to be IDA-like, which is extreme concessionality and a lot of grants. 
if you don't have that and you just think of uh, creating taxes and so on, then there, there are impacts, very clear impacts on countries and developing countries, on the consumers, because taxes are extra costs that will be passed on the consumer. Be it a tax on emission, tax on carbon, a tax on anything, tax on financial transactions, at the end of the day, the consumer pays them. And usually what we have seen that those countries who have similar taxes are exempted from applying these taxes and usually those are developed countries so it, you end up only with developing countries applying those taxes it's a very challenging thing if you take into consideration the different development challenges and the, the burden that we are having so the focus should be use the available resources to reduce the cost it's not only by guaranteeing but also by contributing to the budget reducing the cost work on shifting the debt challenge into becoming an option. So you'd apply the debt swaps, developed countries and other big uh, debtors should focus on that. And you have to let go of some substantial percentage of this debt and transform the repayments into investments in climate. And the third one is focus more on the grants and focus on the implementation. Don't, don't spend your money on bringing experts from uh, developed countries to come and train developing countries on how to access finance. Come on, please. I mean, developing countries have been trained or been under training for, I don't know, 50 years. Mm-hmm. So it is focused more on what we want to achieve on the ground for the different communities. And this is the main focus, not capacity building and not uh, any of the other stuff. Very interesting sentiments there, because I'm actually thinking, listening to you speak, and I'm wondering what this will require, because then again, you find already when you're talking about the global taxation regime, we have Kenya and collaborating with France. And I think actually we are likely to have Kenya and France actually have an announcement in COP28 on the global taxation regime. And it's actually whole idea being floated in terms of looking at levies from fossil fuel trade and you know, aviation maritime. Let's talk a little bit about that and how is it you mentioned that is not back of the solution it's actually and, and, and it's actually being talked about in terms of generating money for things like loss and damage that um, African countries and developing countries need well let's be very clear if you apply taxes anywhere mm-hmm. anywhere so the the sector or the place that you are applying the taxes on they will say we are the major beneficiary of this tax so if you go to aviation or if you go to shipping if you go to financial transactions the the sector will be like uh, the shipping sector the aviation sector will say well we are collecting taxes on our own then we need these taxes to to green our own operations that will not go to a loss and damage fund or maybe a small percentage fraction that will go there but it doesn't make sense and we tried it before so it doesn't really make sense two what we have seen is like when you say okay we want to tax things you don't do double taxation so if you're already taxing on emissions you would not be doing extra taxes but those who don't have the taxes are the ones who are going to put these taxes in place and if you look at the bigger picture it is only developing countries or the majority of developing countries who do not have this kind of taxes so Mm -hmm. now we are going in a direction where we are putting taxes on our own people which will be passed to the consumers at the end just to make sure that others who have put the tax are happy with it i mean it's part of the competitiveness and it's part of too many things if we go in the direction of having taxes on shipping or aviation it will impact your exports going to europe but it will not impact the european producer right mm. and it will impact your imports especially mm. on the food and grains and other stuff but it will not impact the, the european and the other producers it will have an impact on on developing countries exports because the developed countries are already applying these taxes for quite some time and they have put a system in place for 10 years to gradually phase in those kind of things and they have their own subsidies that we cannot even afford to provide so if you look at the ira for example the inflation reduction act of the us mm-hmm. there's 160 billion dollars of subsidies for greening 
their industries. Mm-hmm. Does Kenya have this amount of money to green their industry? No. no. Do Egypt have it? No, we don't have that. Mm-hmm. So we are not even in a level playing field. The Europeans, how much are they putting for the agricultural subsidies? How much have been the, they putting for their companies to green their production? And for how long? And then now we are going, we want to tax everybody with that. I mean, it's a challenging discussion. We know that it is being portrayed by some that the carbon taxation will fix things. It, mm. We have seen it does yep. not. And it does not take into consideration the issues of equity, the just transition, that the transition in developing countries who are not contributing much to, to emissions will take longer time and that's it. And we end up with impacts on our own products. Others are subsidizing and they, are, they can play the rules and they are already applying this for quite some time. So who will be the impacted communities and impacted people? Most probably it will be developing countries. I, w- I was just thinking about the aviation, you know, and the spirit of AFCFTA and in terms of already right now, how, you know, expansive it is to move in terms of flight from one country to another within Africa. Some countries are not even accessible in terms of you have to probably sometimes even fly into Europe and back into an African country and thinking of and, like and, applying. And, it also, and by the way, it will also impact our companies because if you are, I mean, like a Kenya Airlines or Egypt mm. Air or others, those are, mm. are smaller companies compared mm. to the big tycoons in the industry okay they the big tycoons in the industry can still absorb this kind of tax because they have bigger networks and they have better ways to deal with things so their tickets will be more competitive than the others who others who will not be able to contain it but will have to pass it down to the consumers so you will end up with impacting your competitiveness a process mm-hmm. there that we can make. always exempt mm. always exempt countries who have a threshold of below XYZ. So if if your airline is like below XYZ, then you don't apply this carbon tax on it. If your emissions as a country or as per capita is below a specific number, then you don't apply that. This is it. That would be the fairer way. This is where you apply the equity and CBDR and fairness. So it is not one size fits all. And it is not, it should not be applied to developing countries. And it should take into consideration that we are in, in development needs and a transition process. So this is what we want. Without that, then things will be very, very challenging. Interesting. But then again, seems like the system, basically in terms of, look at the whole financing architecture, in terms of when it rules are made, not from actually developing countries' perspective, but I think from developed countries' perspective, when it comes, for example, in terms of even defining what is actually bankable in terms of reporting, it's actually defined from those who are providing money when it comes to in terms of the system. Uh, so what needs to be done for us to achieve you know, this whole equitable and assuring that we can move to a direction whereby one part of you know, developing nations are really not overburdened in terms of not just mention what is happening in terms of climate, because then again, these are issues that we cannot even control in terms of impact to economies, communities, our own historical, in terms of cultural uh, life and all that kind of stuff. What needs to be done? Well, what needs to be done is like we need to go back to the principles thing. I mean, mm-hmm. and, this, and, and we have already enough safeguards and existing agreements be it the Paris Agreement or the Convention, that is very clearly talking about just transition pathways, which factoring in social and economic dimensions of anything that you do. Two, it also talks very clearly about the equity. It talks about uh, develop sustainable development as a priority. And those are the ones that need to be factored in. So it's not one size fits all. We are facing the same challenge, yes, but some of us are in like a 20-foot yacht and others are sitting on a raft. And then you say, like, we're facing the same challenge, you have to all to do the same thing is misleading. Even the capacity 
from our communities to absorb any any extra costs are very limited. Uh, the capacity of our countries to the resilience capacities is very limited. If you take the U.S. for example, U.S. is facing a lot of climate impacts. I mean, they are one of the most vulnerable mm. countries. But they have the resilience capacity to deal with whatever hits them. If you look at developing countries with the same impact, what happens to them? They get devastated. So if you say that we are all the same boat, and those countries who are devastated have to also pay uh, carbon taxes and all these levies, it doesn't make sense. It's not equity, it's not fairness, it is not CBDR, it's not, it's nothing, it's not the Paris Agreement, it's not the Convention. It is one-size-fits-all approach that doesn't take into consideration historical responsibilities and many other responsibilities that are there. It does not allow for the flexibilities for developing countries uh, for, for achieving the, their development. And then you end up with more unemployment, more inflation, higher cost, higher debt. And this is what you end up to with then an, another level of chaos. But is there political will? I mean, that if heads of states are who are engaged and speak highly, they need to put forward the issue of principles as the core thing. It's not only science, it is principles. And it is sustainable development, it's poverty eradication. And this is very clear, the Paris Agreement is about sustainable development as an overarching for developing countries and poverty eradication and equity and just transition. Those are, those are the elements. And the ingredients are there, but people tend to forget about them. And developed countries, many of them, we tend to try to ignore them because, again, it is now competitiveness. It's about trade. It's about nobody wants to pay money. There is a clear responsibility of what we are facing now, but nobody wants to acknowledge it. Very, very, very interesting. You, as a negotiator, you understand the principles. You understand what is supposed to be. But then again, there is politicians you know, who will come to the COP, make deals that goes completely opposite of what needs to be actually. What needs to be achieved is like the politicians need to listen to the negotiators because it is not a, I mean, that's why I'm saying it is a political discussion now, but the negotiators are the ones who knows where things are and where, where the real things are. But if you are a politician, you just go there, you hear from your counterpart, another head of state or another minister, a very compelling and convincing arguments. Yes, we are all facing impacts of climate change. Yes, we have to take the maximum actions. Yes, we need to work on stuff, but there is a baggage behind that. There's historical responsibility, there is commitments and promises that were never delivered. There is a clarity on the principles that we agreed that will govern our like uh, differentiated deal with the approach. And there is a clear demand for sustainable development and poverty eradication. So if you don't know that these are things that parties, developed countries and developing countries, but developed countries have agreed to and committed to, and you only focus on what science is IPC is telling you, then you are having once uh, like half of the story and you are hiding the other half, which is what is the principles that would manage this kind of global interaction with the issue. What is your hope? Oh, I hope is that uh, we have the, the right balance in the outcome with the right messaging and the idea, the, the clear understanding that it is not only about having ambition on action, but ambition and support has to be similar. And without having those right catalysts, you'll end up with limited delivery and, and less trust in the process. And this is something that politicians and the developed country, politicians need to understand and be very aware of. Because at mm -hmm. a certain point, countries will not be able to translate their very ambitious pledges into action. Then don't expect them to come again and again and again with ambitious pledges. It just doesn't become the right process.
Yeah. So it is very important for the political class to understand at the end of the day, everybody has put up an ambitious NDC out there. There are national exactly. plans. But exactly. then again... Mm-hmm. You keep asking developing countries to do X and Y and Z and X and Y and Z and they do it. And then nothing is delivered when it comes to finance or limited delivery. I wouldn't say nothing. I say limited delivery. So mm-hmm. $100 billion, if you say meaningful mitigation actions and planning and the Paris Agreement will provide this much support and then you do that. And then money is not flying. Access is very limited. It is more loans. And countries will, I mean, a lot of African countries are not able to take any more loans. And the cost of finance is raising. And then you have another request, which is, oh, let's have bankable projects. What do you mean bankable projects? It's a profitable project for the private sector. So we are all working for the sake of a private sector to make the private sector as profitable as they can. Doesn't make sense. Whole mindset has to change. And I don't know if, I mean, when the politicians and um, those influencing developed countries will get the idea that they are the ones who should push the narrative and push the private sector into a different direction. It's not only about making the maximum profit, it is mainly also about delivering on actions that developing countries have put forward. And the reality is inequality is increasing. We are seeing it. We are seeing this increasing inequality when it comes to renewable energy. Latest reports from the IEA telling us that the renewable energy happened, or the access and the increase in renewable energy happened in three regions only, China, okay. EU, and the US, while the rest of developing countries are lagging behind. Do you want to continue with the same thing? Do we want to continue with the same discussion? Mm-hmm. Then this is where it seems that this is where we are heading now. What we want to have and make sure is that we account for what we are paying from our pockets now for Mm. adaptation for loss and damage and for everything because we are paying a lot from our budgets if you have a heat wave if you have a flood if you have a drought yes you will be supported by international community but before the international community comes in you will be paying a lot from your pocket from your people's pockets and we need to put this very clearly out there it Mm. has to be an acknowledgement of the substantial contributions that we are paying from our pockets and this to, be, to counterbalance what they are saying, uh, put more taxes, uh, have more domestic resources. I mean, guys, this is all what we are facing now is, is because of, uh, of emissions that are there, not by mm. us, but mm. by others. Mm. And if people don't take the responsibility seriously and they just like try to throw it uh, east and west, then, then we are doing, we were not doing the right process. Mohammed, thank you so much. I really look forward to having more conversation on thank finance. Thank you so much, Sophie. That was Ambassador Mohamed Nessa, who is the COP28 lead negotiator, the Ambassador of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Egypt, and the lead negotiator for Africa on finance, talking about climate finance negotiation. Now, keep it here. We will have another update on the negotiation taking place in Dubai later this week. Also, please follow us, Africa Climate Conversations or Socials, for updates. Now, fantastic news. I'm so excited about this, you know. The Africa Climate Conversations, the podcast, is officially on YouTube. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm so excited because I actually started podcasting in uh, 2020 in June. And so there are so many podcasts, about 130 of them that are there. And so you get the opportunity to listen to all these other previous episodes that we've done. Also, you get an opportunity if you, for example, you want to follow on a specific topic. Say, for example, you want to follow on what has been happening around COP. What are the key issues have been for Africa? You know, the progress that have been for Africa. You can just go to the COP28 playlist. For example, if you want to just look into climate change and mental health, there's a whole playlist on there. 
you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff. I would encourage you to check us out, Africa Climate Conversations. And please do not forget to subscribe. Do not forget to share and do not forget to enable that notification button. In the meantime, I hope to see you again this week. And stay safe. Kwaheri for now. My name is Sophie Mbogwe. Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast. Thank you.